The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. We have been working our way through the book of Emmanuel, which is Isaiah chapter 7 through chapter 12. And what it's about, it's about how to fear the Lord and believe his word. The fear of the Lord, uh, we're told in Proverbs, is the beginning of wisdom. And what he's talking about is when you come to see that, that God himself it has far more power than anything or anybody else. He is omnipotent. He has all authority and power. And so we trust him completely. Well, what we have in chapter 9, we went through chapter 8 last time when we were looking at chapter 9. In chapter 9, he's talking about the perfect gift that God has given to his people. Now, this gift is the Lord Jesus Christ, but listen to the way that he describes him. God is the perfect gift giver. He gives us not only what we need, but it fits perfectly, and it, it, it supplies exactly what we need. So we needed wisdom, and he gave us the wonderful counselor. That's what he calls Jesus, the wonder of a counselor. We needed deliverance, and so God gives us the mighty God. That's another name and title of the Lord Jesus Christ. We needed eternal life, and he's called the father of eternity or the father of the ages. We needed peace, and he's called the Prince of Peace. So everything that we need comes in this package of this person who is coming, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came as the Savior of the world. So Isaiah 9 announces this unspeakable gift. That's what he's talking about. And this is at a time in the history of Israel, 750 B.C. this was written. So think about that for a second. 750 years before the coming of Christ, we're given this letter the book of Isaiah, which is 66 chapters long, perfect parallel to the Bible. The whole Bible is 66 books. Isaiah is 66 chapters, and it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's announcing that God is giving him to his people, this unspeakable gift. Now, there was this passage we are looking at is in chapter 9, and it begins by giving us a, a picture of the darkness that they were in. Listen to this, but there will be no more gloom For her, that is for Israel, who was in anguish in early times. He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. What had happened was that the enemy of Israel came against them, and they they are in a location where Jesus actually comes in Galilee. And it says here that they they treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later he shall make it glorious. He's going to do that by sending Christ is going to come there in Galilee. Uh, By the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. This is where Christ is going to come. He's going to become public in this place. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. That's a picture of them seeing Christ as he comes in fulfillment of the prophecy that we're being given here 750 years before it occurred. The light will shine on them You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence. And this is a prophecy about how blessed the people are going to know that they are because of the giving of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we know that most people in Jesus' time, when he came on the scene, they weren't filled with gladness about it. But most of those who were not in power did. They understood that this was a man who had come from God. And so he says, they're going to rejoice. This is in verse 3. It says, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. In other words, when they go to war and they win the war and they take the spoil, 
In fact, one of the sons of Jeremiah was named Swift is the Spoil, Speedy is the Prey. In other words, and what he's talking about is that his son, whose name this is a sign to the people of Israel that God is going to deliver his people. And he says in verse 5, for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, and a son will be given to us. And here he is, he's talking about a baby, and yet he's saying he's the one who's going to win the battle for God's people. This picture of the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning is a picture that actually was on the money of the Roman Empire. They had a picture of this very thing being set on fire, and it was a picture of victory in war. And so this is what was going on. In verse 1, it's talking about the darkness of judgment. And in verse 2, it's talking about the coming of the light of deliverance, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. The person who walk in darkness will see a great light, and those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And he's talking about the fact that Jesus is going to come in Galilee. And so the results of this light, he goes on to tell us in verses 3, 4, and 5, he says, Thou shalt multiply the nation, thou shalt, he's talking to God, you shall increase their gladness. Now, the reason he's mentioning the nation of Israel is that they were his chosen people. They were his tool by which he was going to bring the Lord Jesus Christ into the world to be the Savior of the world. They will be glad in your presence, God's presence, as with the gladness of harvest. Just like people are, are overwhelmed with joy when the harvest is brought in and they see that it produced such a great harvest, a, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. So there's going to be great rejoicing when Christ comes, when they finally come to realize who he is and how he is a gift from God. And he comes through a climactic deliverance. In verse 4, he says, For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. Now he mentions the one who won the battle of Midian, who is Gideon. And Gideon was a little man who God used in a powerful way. And he used him in a powerful way that's recorded for us in the book of Judges. And I want to turn back there because I want you to listen to this. And this really explains the, the, the significance of this whole chapter and what God is saying. Listen to these words. He says, I'm in Judges chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him, they were getting ready for war, rose early and camped beside the spring of Harad. And the camp of Midian, which were the enemies, was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, so God's speaking to Gideon, who's leading this army, and yet he's just a little man. He says, the people who are with you are too many for me. Get that. God says, here's the problem. Your army's too big. And so he finds a way to slim them down. He says, I can't give you Midian because you have too many soldiers. And this is what they're going to say. He says, this is God speaking to him. He says, for Israel would become boastful, saying, my own power has delivered me. And so he said, we got to get rid of some of these men so that the battle that you win is seen to be in, done in the power of God. And he goes on in verse 3, he says, Now therefore come proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned. They fled. They said, I don't want to do this. I'm afraid. But 10,000 remained. And God says, That's still too many. So the Lord says to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And he goes on, and the test is, How are they going to drink water? Well, 
He says, if they lap water like a dog, they will be okay for them to go with you. But if they don't, if they just put their head down in the water and start shoveling water into their mouth, they're not going to go with you. And that is because they're of their confidence. That's what he's talking about. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, You shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. The number of those who lapped, that is, they drank like God wanted them to, putting their hand to their mouth was 300 men. Now, remember, they had a a huge army of, of thousands, and now he says there's 300 men left that passed the test. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with 300 men who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands so that all the other people go, each man and his brothers, home. They go home. They do not fight in this war. So the 300 men took the people's provision and their trumpets into their hands. This is what God told them to take. And Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his own tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it to you, and put it in your hands. But if you're afraid, if you're worried that you're not going to win this war, then just go down there, sneak down there with your servant, Pura, and go down to the camp and listen to what they're saying to each other, and you will hear what they say. And afterward, your hands will be strengthened that you may go down against the hands of will be strengthened because they're going to hear what the these warriors are thinking. They're thinking that God is going to destroy them. They understand that God is in control and in power. And so uh, he wants them to be, he wants Gideon to be encouraged. And so Gideon goes down and he hears them talking about it. And uh, it says, when Gideon came, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend. And he said, behold, I had a dream a loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of the Midian, and it came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. His friend replied, now he's talking about one of the Midianites. He hears about this image, and this is what he sees, or this dream, and he says, this is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. When Gideon heard this account, it encouraged him. And he bowed down and worshiped, and he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given us the camp of Midian. You may think, well, that's kind of silly, but that's the power of God in manifestation in a very simple way. And he was showing Gideon that he was going to bring about victory through him. Gideon becomes a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to come into a situation that seems impossible. How can he save a human race that all have been impacted by the fall and the sin of Adam and, and yet Jesus Christ is going to come, and we're going to have a verse like Romans 8, verse 1, which says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And he goes on to explain that we've been set free. We are not condemned because we have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. We haven't done anything to earn it. We haven't done anything to show our power. We have simply bowed the knee and become weak before God. And we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and we were saved. And this is what he's trying to illustrate in this chapter. He's trying to illustrate the fact that God knows how to give the gift that we need. And so he gave us this glorious gift, this one who is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the father of the ages, and the prince of peace. And he is powerful, and he is able to deliver them. 
His great blessing is described for us in verse 3. It says, Thou shalt multiply the nation. He's talking to God. You shall multiply the nation, which was under great duress. They were being overrun by Tiglath-Pileser, the, the, uh, the king of Assyria. And so they were destitute, and they were looking down, and they were thinking there was, they were going to be defeated. But he says, thou shalt increase their gladness. That is, God shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in thy presence as with the gladness of harvest. They'll be like people who enter into the harvest of their crop, and it's just a glorious thing. I talked to a lady last week who experienced God supplying a need that she didn't think that their family could meet, and it was supernatural, and she was just overwhelmed with God's goodness. It's like that, that God is going to deliver them with something that looks so unimportant. And that's what this this book of Emmanuel has started with. It started with this picture of the the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and the mighty Euphrates. And he says that the gentle flowing waters of Shiloh, which was just a little streams that ran into the city of Jerusalem, it was an unplanned supply of water for the people in Jerusalem, except it was planned by God before the foundation of the world. God was providing for them in a way that looked so weak a little gentle flowing streams that were coming down into the three little valleys. But this is what he wants them to know. He wants them to know that his weapons may not look glorious. They may not look, they may not look like they could win the war, but he can win the war. This is why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When you come to the place where you fear God above all others, he has more power, more ability uh, to, than anything else and anyone else. And if we can come to trust him, and rely upon him that he can win our wars, then we will find the victory that he's talking about. And that's why he's giving his son, and he calls him the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the father of the ages, the prince of peace, because these were the things that the people needed. They needed counsel. They needed God to speak to their hearts. They needed the mighty God. It's quite literally, it's El Gibor, and that expression means a hero of a god. The word ale is God. The word Gibor is a hero. So he's a hero of a God. He's glorious. And then he calls him the father of the ages, uh, the prince of peace. And so he is this mighty warrior. He's a mighty deliverer, and yet he's very unimpressive. He was born to a virgin. He was born in a little tiny town that no one took note of. But he was born uh, in fulfillment of the prophecy in the Old Testament about the coming of the Redeemer, who's not going to be impressive to many people, but he's going to do the job. He's going to accomplish the task. And all of us who have believed on him, we are experiencing the benefits of this of this work of Jesus Christ, who looked so weak. He didn't look powerful. He looked weak. This, this whole thing of this blessing is going to come through a climactic deliverance. Verse 4 says, For thou shalt break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian, when Gideon did this. And he says, he goes on, he says, ultimately the deliverance is going to come through a mighty buildup of, not through a mighty buildup of, of armed forces, not clones, not drones, nothing like that. It's going to come through a hero like Gideon, who was very unimpressive, but who was a great deliverer. And so this is this absolute deliverance he's talking about. In verse 5, he says, for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning. So all of their elements that look so powerful are going to be destroyed. They're going to be worth nothing but warming their hands around the fire. That's it. The symbol of peace on the Roman coins 
in fact, became a torch ready to light up a great pile of weapons of war. That was their enemy's weapons. And this is exactly a picture of that. So the message of this passage is deliverance and peace will come supernaturally through a great hero. But who is the great hero? The great, he's like the great Gideon to come who will deliver Israel supernaturally. And he tells us in verses 6 and 7 that he's a baby. He's pictured as a baby, the virgin's baby. The virgin shall be with child and she shall call his name Emmanuel or God with us. God loves to deliver through weakness. And so we see the deliverance that he's promising us and it looks so weak. In, in, this, in the book of Revelation, for example, a lamb overcomes the great beast. In Isaiah 7 through 11, this book of Emmanuel, the gentle waters of Shiloh overcome the great waters of Euphrates. The little child will ultimately bring deliverance from the mighty forces of the enemy. And so he describes this hero in such a glorious way. In verses 6 and 7, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given for us. What that's talking about is the fact that the child, he is, he is a real human. He's born. This, this child is born. He is born to a virgin woman that God chooses to be his mother. And he is a son that's given. He is human, but he's also divine. He's the eternal son of God who was given by the Father. And he says the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So there'll be no end to the increase of his government of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice. And he's talking prophetically about God saving his people who are going to be saved for all eternity through the Lord Jesus Christ. So this child is born. And his humanity is, is described for us as he was a, a baby born, but he's also a son given. The word only begotten that we see in the Bible, like in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The word begotten is monogenes. Monogenes means either only begotten or quite literally one of a kind. There's none other like him. I came, he said to Pilate. I never have used that expression. I would never tell people, well, I came in 1943, and uh, God wanted to use me in a particular way. I would never say that. Uh, I would never talk about my birth as a coming, but that's what Jesus did, because he's existed from all eternity, and he comes into the world to deliver his people. And he is called the truth. One time, uh, Pilate said to him, so you're a king, eh? And Jesus says, for this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify concerning the truth. And he says, everyone who is of the truth hears me. They respond to him. And so these names each reveal both deity and humanity. They all together, they stress the adequacy of Jesus for us who are in need. The word Jesus, the name Jesus means Jehovah's salvation. It's a complete summary of all the other names. He's Jehovah's salvation because he's a wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, and prince of peace. And so that's who he is. And he is going to, when he's called the wonderful counselor, the word wonderful is Pele. And it means wonderful, but it also is what is used in the, in the Bible concerning deity. God is called wonderful. And so now he's going to send his son, and his son is called wonderful. And the, the idea is he will give you peace when it looks like there is no peace. But we're told we should not experience, we shouldn't stay in anxiety, but we should make our request made known to God, believing that he is able to meet every need. I once uh, was meeting with a couple that the, the wife was dying of cancer, a young couple, and they loved the Lord Jesus Christ. It was such a great time of talking to them about their faith. 
and about God's ability to take them through this thing was so horrible. I remember the last time I saw her, I visited in the hospital, and it was as though I'd gone to a train station and a person was leaving on on the train. It was the last train, and she was just talking to me about it as her death, as though it was about to take place and she was going to enter into the presence of God. And this this name, Mighty God, who is the hero of a God, one time uh, Horace Bushnell, who's a famous old Bible scholar, who said uh, one time, he says, why don't you get the best man you know? Because you guys are always complaining about Jesus. You're always criticizing Jesus. So get the best man that you know and have him stand before you and have him repeat the words of Jesus and see what people think and say. Because Jesus said things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you remember, Muhammad said, there is only one God and I am his teacher. But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's only one way to get to God, and that is through me, because he has sent me into the world to do that very thing, to be the entree into the presence of God. And so when we, if we were to take all the transcendent assumptions about what Jesus said about himself, we would see how soon the glory of any other man would fade away, because we are just men, but he is more. He is God. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Jesus Christ is absolutely alone. There's none like him. He is amazing. He comes among men, and he points out their sins, yet he acknowledges no sin on his part because he was sinless. He says that you must repent, but he doesn't repent. He doesn't show us how to repent. He tells us we are sick, and he is the great physician. He tells us we are sinners, but he is the Savior. He tells us we are sheep, and he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. If Jesus is not deity, he's a madman, and we should not follow him. The government shall be on his shoulders, a baby on the throne. Can you imagine that? Back in Isaiah 3, 4, it says that this is why nations are ruined when they put little babies, little small children on the throne. But this child is a ruler. He is perfect. He rules because he is God. So he is, he is called the everlasting father or the father of the ages. What does he mean by that? He's not the father of the father. He is the father of the ages. And we're told in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, that he made the ages. And then we're told a little later in verse 13 that he fitted them together. And then finally in chapter 9 of Hebrews, verse 26, we're told that he fulfilled the ages. He culminated them. It says, now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I don't think there's a a more glorious statement in all of Scripture that he appeared at the high point of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He was willing to give his life for us. And then he's called the Prince of Peace, which is Shar Shalom, Prince of Peace. His rule will result in peace. That's the amazing thing. As he rules, wherever he rules, he brings peace. Now, we have heard of the EU the European Union and the CIS, the Commonwealth of Independent States, which is about the former Soviet Union. We've heard about the the United Nations and all that, but there's no peace. There'll be no end to his the increase of his government or of his peace forever. The kingdom will ultimately merge into the eternal state and last forever. Can God do all this? Can God put a baby on the throne? Can he bring peace among men? Can this baby bring peace among men? Can he set up the kingdom on earth? Can he be a counselor in your life that brings order, contentment, confidence, peace, and joy when all you know is confusion, fear, and anxiety? Yes, he can. He is glorious, 
and he can do exactly what God sent him to do. Can he really bring forgiveness and eternal life to those who receive him by faith? I tell you, yes, without any doubt, yes, he can. We're told in chapter 9, verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. God's zeal will accomplish this through the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told that God desires to save all men. That's, that gives us the right to share the gospel with anybody because you cannot find a man that God could not and would not save if you simply share the gospel with him and he believes on the Lord Jesus Christ because Christ is able to save all who come to him in faith and put their trust in him. And so that's what this, this passage is about. I'd like to do one thing. I'd like to turn you over to 1 Peter. In 1 Peter, we have an amazing section of the application of this very truth. This is what we are supposed to be doing while Jesus is still awaiting his return, his second return, his second coming, his return to the earth. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 through 11, it has an amazing statement uh, that Peter makes. He says, the end of all things has drawn near. Now, what he means by that expression, the end of all things having drawn near, is that Jesus Christ has done everything that he needed to do to bring in the end times. He came into the world and died for our sins. He, he was resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he poured out his spirit. And so we live in the last days. We live in a time when Christ has completed his work. We're not, we're not hoping that he's going to finish his work. We know he has finished his work, and now we're calling men to believe on him and trust him. And this First uh, Peter, he tells us how we should be applying the work of Christ right now as people who are, have put their faith in him. He says, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And then down in verse 7, it says, the end of all things, this is this is First Peter chapter 4, verse 7, the end of all things has drawn near, quite literally, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayers. That little word prayer is actually in the plural, and it's that way because he's talking about our times of getting together to pray. Prayer meetings, we call them, when we come together to pray. And he says we should always, because we're living in this time where God, where Christ has finished his work and now we're awaiting the day when he returns, that we should be sober and alert for the purpose of getting together to pray. And then he says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Now that statement is very clear that we're going to face sins in the lives of one another, but he says that we should love one another fervently because love covers a multitude of sins. He says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. That's, this is almost amusing because the word complaint means the cooing of doves without you complaining under your breath that you're being hospitable to somebody, but you can't wait until they leave. He says, no, you share all that you have with, with one another without complaint. And then he says, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That statement is full. It's complete. It's wonderful. What he's saying is, Every single one of us has received a spiritual gift, but the spiritual gift is meant to to empower us, to enable us to be good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And then he goes on to explain that. He says, whoever speaks to do this is to be speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to serve as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies or choreographs quite literally, so that in all things God will be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. In other words, God wants to display his power through us, but we can't think ourselves as mighty. 
We are simply weak members of the body of Christ who have been given this glorious privilege. So if we speak or if we serve, these are the two categories of of spiritual gifts that he mentions. Now, the Apostle Paul mentions 20 different gifts. Peter says there are two basic categories of gifts. There are speaking gifts, that is, that we dispense the grace of God by speaking the Word of God to people. And then there is the serving gifts, which are meant to display the heart of God in dispensing His grace. And that's why he says, for by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong glory and dominion forever and ever. So what he's saying is this, that our spiritual gift has been given to us. Every single believer has a spiritual gift. According to Romans 8, verses 9 and 10, every single believer has the Holy Spirit. And according to this verse, every single believer has a spiritual gift. And your gift is either a speaking gift or a serving gift. And it is designed and its purpose is to display and to dispense the grace of God. Let me explain to you what a steward was. A steward was one of the servants in the household who had this responsibility of distributing what the master of the household was providing for his people. In other words, they would need provision. They needed food and they needed clothing, and he would provide all that. And one of the servants was called a steward because it was his responsibility to dispense these things to the people who needed them. So God has done this. He has given each one of us an ability to dispense his grace. And it's either a speaking gift or it's a serving gift, but it's a way of dispensing God's grace. And his grace is his unmerited favor. He provides for us all that we need. And so here he says, now sometimes what we're doing in in dispensing his grace is we're simply encouraging people to know and understand that God has provided everything that you need. He is almighty, and he is able to meet your needs, and he wants you to know that. He wants you to understand it. He wants you to experience it. And so we have been given this right, every single believer given a spiritual gift that enables him to dispense God's grace. I love this. Romans chapter 5 tells us that we have entered into grace. We have been ensphered in grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It's bless him blessing us, though we don't deserve it and though we cannot earn it. And yet he wants to pour it into our lives. And then he says, now I want to give you the ability to dispense that grace to fellow believers so that God would be glorified. Isn't that amazing that God is the kind of God that even though he is, he is omnipotent, he has all power, he wouldn't need us to dispense this grace, he could do it himself, and yet he has decided to use us in his hands to fulfill this glorious purpose, to dispense his grace into the lives of people who need his grace in particular ways. And so that's what we've been called to. And he says that if we have a speaking gift, we're to speak the utterances of God, which simply means we, we rely upon God. We, what we say, we want it to be consistent with the will of God. When, when the Apostle Paul thought about the believers who had come to faith in Colossae, he says, ever since I heard about it, I haven't ceased to pray that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, the knowledge of his will is the knowledge of the word of God. That's where we have recorded for us the will of God. And he says, I want you to be filled with it. I want you to be under its control. I want it to fill your heart and your life. And he says, I want it, it to, for you to come to the place where you have, he says, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. In other words, all those, that phrase means is, I, he wants me not only to know his will, he wants me to see the implications of his will for my life and to see how they fit together. And so sometimes I got a note yesterday that was such a wonderful thing because it was a, it was a reminder 
um, that it wasn't the word of God. It was just the word of a fellow disciple that I know and love. And he was telling me how God was working in his life. And it was wonderful news. It wasn't inspired, but it was very inspiring. It was the truth about how God was working in his life. It's what Watchman Nee called spiritual knowledge, that we come to know what God's really like by the way that he deals with us. And he deals with us in so many wonderful ways by putting people into our lives who can dispense his gifts into our lives in a way that we really, we are filled with joy. We're like someone who's just looking at the harvest that has been brought in and God has richly, richly blessed them. So not only are we to be people that are willing for God to use, we need to realize we're not going to be impressive. We're simply going to be tools in his hands. He is impressive. We are not. And we need to keep that in mind and understand it. And that's exactly what Gideon came to understand, that even though he was a young man who had lots of power and strength and all that, he was serving a God who is an all-powerful God. And he said, I want them to see my power as I use you to deliver them. And that's what he wants to do in our lives. He wants to use us to bring deliverance to people, but he wants us also to know that it's God who delivers, not weak men like us. Uh, So this is what we pray for. It's what we want to see happen in the midst of this pandemic. We want to see God being glorified by his people, being used by him as instruments in his hands. I love the fact, he says, that he's not only going to help us to come to understand the truth, but he's also going to fill our hearts with understanding. And so he says, if you serve, you serve according to the choreography of the Father. In other words, the Father shows us how we are to serve him, how we are to meet the needs of people. And so we want to know not just what we should be doing, but how we should be doing it so that Christ gets the glory. We want to serve Christ so that he gets the glory. And that's what this this chapter is all about, and this truth is all about. The perfect gift the Lord Jesus Christ has been given to us by the Father because he wants his Son to be honored and glorified. And so that's what we ask for ourselves. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you for the fact you have the perfect Son to display his glory and his honor. And we pray that you would help us to learn how to do that, to live our lives in a way that continually shows him as being the glorious, glorious King, the Prince of Peace, the mighty God, and we are thankful for him. We ask you, Father, even in the midst of this pandemic, that you would teach us how to glorify you in the way that we serve you and in the way that we dispense your glorious gifts of grace in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We ask this for Christ's glory, for his sake, and because we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.